I'm going to beg your indulgence because um, what I'm reading is very much a work in progress. Uh, its title is Ghost First Person, and um, it is told from the point of view of somebody who also describes his own demise. So uh, he returns back to his farmhouse, which is essentially my farmhouse in East Callis, and then narrates the whole novel. The reason um, that it's difficult to read from a novel in progress, especially if the structure is symphonic like this one, is to try to figure out what parts to read. Um, all my books have been set in the Maritimes of Canada, and finally, I think the loss of a very good friend, I decided finally to write about Vermont and the house that I've had for many, many years. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, there, there are two parallel stories. One is the story of this guy who goes to Amsterdam and gets involved in something he shouldn't have gotten involved in, and he doesn't make it out of Amsterdam. But he returns to his farmhouse. Um, and then there's another section, which is him describing the, uh, a, the life of a couple who has now, is now living in his farmhouse. So he's in there with them. And uh, there's all sorts of, I wouldn't say exactly voyeuristic, but certain elements um, and the frustration that he sees certain things um, that happen in his marriage being repeated in theirs, but he can't really interact with it. So I'm going to read um, a short section of each of these parallel stories, which at about page 120 start to intersect. Um, and I hope that's not too convoluted an uh, explanation. It's, it's a little hard to describe how this book works. It's very long, too. Um, I lost a, 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 a friend this year who, who I, I'd known since, since I was 18. You, you know his writing because he's famous songwriter Leonard Cohen and he and he has a um, a line in this new in this posthumous um, album or a CD uh, I just aged myself <laughs> in this new CD um, and the lines are your crazy fragrance all around your secrets in my view and uh, th that's the epigram for epigraph for this novel so um, the first uh, part takes place in the farmhouse. It's called Motion in Library, and uh, the reason it's called that will be explained. <clears throat> when she stepped in from the farmhouse porch, Zachary knew from her slightly lopsided smile, eyes squinted tight against tears, that Muriel's thesis defense had gone well. She was now Dr. Muriel Teachout. He could also see that the drive in early December sleet and on icy roads Boston home to Vermont, had worn her to a frazzle. How do you want to celebrate, Zachary said. Muriel set a bag of groceries on the kitchen table. She removed her overcoat and hung it on the silent butler by the door, kicked off her boots, crossed her arms, and grasping its bottom hem, lifted off her sweater, which she set on the back of a chair. She walked right past her husband into the bedroom. She turned down the bedclothes and then ran a steaming hot bath. Japanese bath salts tinged the water an orange hue. Standing in the bathroom doorway, her peach-colored blouse unbuttoned, her gray slacks on the floor, Muriel called toward the kitchen. Darling, I only didn't hug you because I want to save every ounce of strength for later. <clears throat> I believe it was Zachary's experience that certain evenings delivered them into each other's arms 
as if the passing hours themselves had it in mind all day and finally could not wait. There was a sense of predestination about it. Neither of them would be caught dead using the words delivered them into each other's arms. My name is Simon Frears. Muriel and Zachary Teachout now own this 1850 farmhouse in the village of East Callis, Vermont. Notice I did not say my former farmhouse. I still am in residence here. Things should be stated directly, don't you think? Now I must mention motion and library. Ever since I died in Amsterdam and reoccupied my farmhouse, the alarm system that Muriel and Zachary installed keeps announcing motion and library. It is a state, this is the autobiographical part. It is a state-of-the-art system with motion detectors in every one of the downstairs rooms. Since I wander freely throughout the farmhouse, there is no determinable logic, even to me, as to why only the motion detector, detector in the library has so far registered any disturbance. I may give off a different vibration in the library, I don't know. When this occurs, the alarm company's dispatcher located in Montpelier receives the motion in library bulletin. According to procedure, volunteers responders are called in a predetermined order. The way Muriel and Zachary have it arranged, first on the list are Jody and David, writers and translators just up the dirt road, followed by Erica, a radio programmer who lives at the opposite side of the farmhouse and halfway yet down the road to Route 14, which in turn connects up to Route 2, running east and west through the state. Third to be telephoned is Jasper Soames, a retired police officer who lives in neighboring Adamant near the Adamant Music School. Since Muriel and Zachary were married seven months ago, May 26, in the farmhouse, the motion and library notice has been received by Onion River Security 17 times. I have not meant to be reckless in this regard, but it is driving Muriel and Zachary a little bonkers, not to mention the neighbors. When Muriel said to Zachary, why don't we carry out a little experiment and disconnect the motion de detector in the library and see what happens? Zachary said, Muriel, you want to disconnect the motion detector in the one room motion is being detected? That's counterintuitive. Counter to your intuition, but not to everyone else's in the whole world, Muriel said. This did not amount to a quarrel, only an exchange of sentences with tones calibrated, as Buddhists suggest, to not bring something to a painful point. So far, they had been talented at this. Each time motion in library lights up the switchboard, so to speak, a responder drives over and checks things out and finds nothing amiss, except perhaps a book fallen to the floor. The alarm company has assured Muriel and Zachary that even the collected poems of Wallace Stevens, which was found open face down on the library floor a few weeks ago, could not set off the motion alarm unless it flew around the room first and then descended in slow motion and then at the last possible second doubled its weight and slammed to the floor directly on one of the alarm wires underneath the Turkish rug. Muriel's and Zachary's main coon cap named Epilogue for the fact that he concludes the lives of many f mice who weighs around 22 pounds simply never enters the library unless Muriel is clacking away on a royal manual typewriter at her desk there or Zachary is laying on the sofa reading. But if Epilogue were to walk into the library when the alarm was on, she does not weigh enough to set it off. Anyway, I feel pretty bad. I had been reading the collected poems of Wallace Stevens when I had dozed off and the book had fallen to the floor and I fell directly on top of it and slept on the floor until Jasper Soames woke me when I overheard him speak aloud to himself all the way out here again and not a goddamn thing amiss. Well, maybe there's something in the fridge to eat. Let's have a look. 
The physics or metaphysics of setting off the alarm are beyond my powers of comprehension, so I just try to stay out of the library as much as possible, though it is the second most interesting room in the house to me. Muriel did not give a thought to putting on her robe after stepping out from the bath. Zachary was waiting for her in bed, wearing only his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame t-shirt with a caricature of Bob Dylan on it. She took a sip from the shot glass of whiskey Zachary had placed on the bedside table. There was light from the oval glass window of the wood stove. There was light from the table lamp in the living room and a shadow doubling the lamp size against the wall with the drawing of trees by the painter Jake Berto. Otherwise, the farmhouse was dark. Under the bedclothes, Muriel pressed up against Zachary and things began. This is always where I perhaps should provide myself an admonition, counsel, advice, gentle reproof, caution, all of these, all of these, and yet I sometimes stay and watch, only twice in fact, and I am not sure I will again, and almost right away when they had finished making love, I went into the library and tried, so sorry, and, and tried to find the language to describe what I had seen. I write longhand in a black moleskin notebooks, which I keep under the wooden file cabinet. I fill the notebook with all sorts of observations. Someday they might discover these notebooks and know even more of who they are. Naturally, I have no antecedent experiences or models for any of this, of course. I mean the observing and the writing down what I see, except possibly the novels of Junichiro Tanizaki, which I read during the last year of my life. There was The Key and Diary of a Mad Old Man which are, you might say, besotted by voyeurism and other questionable behaviors, and yet provide an inimitable atmosphere whose unscrupulousness and even creepiness at times is counterbalanced with a deeply earned pathos and an abiding sense of elegiac anticipation. The heart is seldom rational, the mind sometimes. Muriel was lying on top of Zachary and had just drawn her husband inside her, a duet of an intake of breath and moan when he said, what is it? You have a look, what is it? Muriel held Zachary's arms above his head, situating herself so that she could move her hips ever so slowly, and then she took one of his hands and placed it on her lower back. He put his other hand flat against Muriel's face and said, just tell me. In a moment, in a moment, she said, and closed her eyes. Zachary put his hand on her shoulder while his other hand remained on her back and Muriel kissed him deeply as they locked into their tight circular motion. Zachary had an expression as I read it of hope that his wife would not answer his question, that they would stay lost away from words. Muriel's thesis was titled parentheses, the poems of Muke Corin, 1890 to 1941. The word parentheses referred to Corin's signature invention, considered modernist, of composing a single line set within a parentheses, a line that offered an autonomous erotic tableau, yet still interacted with the entire poem itself. Muriel had translated 55 of Corin's poems with the help of a friend and colleague, Kazumi Tanaka, who provided rough literal renditions which Muriel had worked long hours to shape in English. She had most of them memorized, too, so that now when Zachary said, just tell me, Muriel held his face in her hands, caught her breath, and recited in his ear, 
This is one of Corin's poems. Today I feel like a butterfly that has landed on an ancient wooden ship. I am comfortable in my dimensions. I do not feel small or reduced. Parentheses. While traveling the length of her body, he discovers honey with his tongue. No one on the ship notices my beautiful wings, nor that I am sad. All of this is just the way life is. <coughs> Maybe I'll stop with that section there. Um, <laughs> it, um, they become closer. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, suddenly embarrassed. I don't know why. Um, uh, I'll read you one more of the poems that she tells him later in the same evening. She writes, recites, it's a very successful evening. She recites eight poems to him. Um, successful uh, literarily, I mean. Um, this is another Corin poem. Tragedies befall us one after the next, each more difficult to recover from. Still, the light this morning was beautiful in the pine trees, and close by light was beautiful in the willow. Parentheses. It's just now dusk, and yet with you placing lemon-tasting fingerprints on your breasts for me to gently erase, the folding of clothes and the making of tea will have to wait. Friends named their daughter after a famous actress who drowned. Eventually, the daughter won every swimming competition. Her name was Flying Fish. The morning light is again beautiful. Today, a tragedy may befall us. So that's a section from um, the ongoing thing. Uh, Zachary is a detective, and he's, uh, he's researching. He's following up on a, a child abdication, that, which turned out to be fine, but it happened in my part of Vermont about 10 years ago. And she is um, a professor of, of this literature. so. Now, we have to move you to Amsterdam. And this is the story of uh, how this guy starts to get into trouble, the Simon. Uh, there are 44 sections that happen in Amsterdam that describe the whole thing, and each one is called the same thing. It's, they're called How I Died in Amsterdam. <clears throat> His wife is named Lorca, uh, as, as is um, Leonard's daughter's name. My wife Lorca would sometimes say, in the hours still left to us, even if she was only wanting to watch a movie on the Turner Classic Station. The first time she uttered those words was in January 1994. This persisted through February and finally it began to disturb me because I worried that Lorca might be locked in a premonitory frame of mind. It could even be a morbid condition. After a while, I came to realize the words were borne up like an involuntary refrain from Lorca's unconscious. And I now took it as a kind of prayer, petitioning for a little extra time, but also a way of reminding herself just how provisional life really was, almost a private utterance, except with me in the room. I felt it was best to think of it philosophically. The thing was, I'd been careful all along to never comment, to never call those words portentous or call them anything at all. I just waited it out. Then one night in late March, I startled awake in bed and said to myself, she can't help it. Of course she can't. Why couldn't I see this before? On the other hand, I also knew 
that if you stop thinking about such things, it's being reckless toward your marriage. Anyway, the night before I left for Amsterdam, The night before I left for Amsterdam, April 8th, I had prepared lemon chicken in the Dutch oven. Lork and I spoke with the affected casualness that befit avoidance, and it wasn't difficult to tell that this made us separately sad. Lorca stood and kissed me on the forehead. I'll put on coffee, I said. Clearing the dishes, Lorca said, and the hour is still left to us. Let's watch the letter. You know that Betty Davis flick? with the most frightening ending ever. It's on in 15 minutes. The movie ended at 11.50. I've got a pack a second suitcase, I said. In the morning, I woke to the alarm set for 6.15. Lorca had already left for her painting studio above the Adamant Village Co-op, which was a 15-minute drive from our farmhouse. She was deep into a series of portraits of Joffrey Varga, the custodian and groundskeeper at the Adamant Music School who was also groundskeeper for five or six cemeteries in the area and who often worked at the large cemetery in Montpelier. Andrea Sirota, who worked at the co-op, told me that portraits of him were filling her studio walls. Andrea was a friend of mine, so not much of Lorca's, and she was a woman who couldn't help but be direct. The more detailed the portraits get, she said, the more worried I become. She said to me over coffee one day, but what do I know? Lorca had placed a note next to the coffee grinder. I'm sure your lectures in Amsterdam will go splendidly, darling. Try not to sound too cranky, if possible. Call me soon, please. We can talk about what has happened with us, or we don't have to till you get back. I do love you, as you know. I drove my car to the Burlington Airport, left it in long-term parking, boarded my flight to New York, where I had a four-hour layover until departing for Amsterdam. On the plane, I worked a little on the lectures, slept, watched a movie, read a little of In the Dutch Mountains by Case Noteboom. I arrived to the Amsterdam airport, she called at 8.20 a.m., and got a taxi directly to the Ambassade Hotel on Herengracht and checked into room 357. I then went directly to the Rijksmuseum, where for a while I stood in front of Rembrandt's Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Vermeer's The Kitchen Maid, and my favorite, Peter de Hoek's interior with woman beside linen cupboard. Then jet lagged caught up with me. I got a taxi to my hotel. I left a message for Professor Bacher, hoping to meet her for lunch the next day. I had dinner at Kanji de Tiger and went for a brief walk along several canals before returning to the ambassade. I set out my clothes in a bureau and closet. I set my lectures out on the writing desk, listened to a classical music station, and fell off to sleep by 11 o'clock. The following morning at about 8.30, I had breakfast in the hotel restaurant and then sat in the second floor library to sit, sip an espresso and write a letter to Lorca on hotel stationery. The library had a small alcove off the main room with its tall shelves full of books and rolling ladders, a floor lamp next to each of its overstuffed chairs and sofa. And it was then that the trouble started, an entirely unforeseen incident that drew my fateful curiosity that set me on the irreversible path to my demise. I overheard voices coming from a corner in the alcove. I simply hadn't yet noticed anyone there, yet now their words drifted whole cloth to my ears, vivid as a telegram. 
Later, I learned there were Philomena Candusian and Benjamin Oliphant. She was 31, born and raised in New Zealand. He was 30, a Canadian. They had met on Fulbright teaching scholarships in Japan. They were in Amsterdam on their honeymoon. In a flattened voice loud enough, however, to belie a desperate urgency, Philomena said, darling, I don't care if he's a policeman or not. If you know that your uncle was responsible for that little boy's death, you have to do something about it. Ben, you must figure out what kind of person you are. Eventually, it will come between us if you don't. Sitting there, involuntarily, I read the same sentence on page 22 of the following story over and over again, as if my mind contained an old-school phonograph needle stuck in a groove. Benjamin, I think you know what your uncle really did. I was frozen to my chair. I thought that my nervous system would never recover. After a few moments, I glanced over in the hope that they had been rehearsing a play. I could see them both in full profile. Maybe she was an actress. Their chairs had been pulled to a few feet apart. A few feet apart. Maybe he was running lines with her. But when I took in their expressions, the way she pressed her forehead to his, the way he tried to unclasp her hands from their grip on his wrists, the color rising in her face, it struck me that they were nearing the limits of their emotional endurance. He stiffly shaking his head no, and she nodding yes, her eyes now closed, his tearing up, for all the world oblivious to any other life in the library. Darling, it's the first real decision of our marriage. I knew that it was no rehearsal for anything. I accidentally knocked over the espresso cup which hit the wooden floor. Philomena and Benjamin left the library. In half an hour, I too left the library and took the stairs to the third floor. As I walked down the hallway, I saw the housekeeper's cart in front of an open door. I looked in. The room was identical to mine, the smallest available in the hotel. On the bedside table, I recognized Philomena's pair of round, black-rimmed eyeglasses, which had hung by a cord around her neck. Next to the eyeglasses was a copy of The English Patient by Michael Andace. The tableau, if you will, struck a deep chord, not just because I was so raptly given to the intrigues of European hotels, but because somehow the tender yet slightly ominous snippet of conversation I'd overheard, and what I knew to be the ingenious paradoxes natural to Andachi's narrative imagination all just seemed in an instant to organize the world with an intimate and synchronistic insistence in clarity. Something the writer Janet Maslin wrote occurred to me just then. Andache is able to commingle anguish and seductiveness in fierce, unexpected ways. In my room, I sealed my letter to Lorca in an envelope, lay on the bed, and slept another hour or so. When I woke, I saw I'd left the Do Not Disturb sign on the inside front doorknob, as if it was an instruction to myself. It was then it registered fully and with a sharp, merciless clarity that no matter how grateful I was for the employment, the fact that I was lecturing in Amsterdam stood for a certain desperate element of recognition, of resignation. A little background to that statement. Nearly 25 years earlier, I had published a novel whose main character was a young man trying to become an artist specializing in birds. He had correspondence going with a kind of mentor down in Halifax, and he just wanted to try to figure out a way to make a living there in the remote fishing village of Whitless Bay, Newfoundland. His mother had a torrid affair with a lighthouse keeper. 
There was revenge and murder, and it all comprised a kind of maritime opera played out along the weather-punished coastline in 1911. Anyway, the novel did all right. It actually gained a reputation and sold well for a literary novel, if you will. But truth be told, the following four novels didn't fare nearly as well, and it left me scrambling to make a living, let alone muster up the fortitude to begin another novel. Lorca had inherited some money from her parents, but that was going fast. Her paintings sold steadily, but not for big prices. I wrote a couple of screenplays for independent films that never got made, things like that. I developed an academic sideline, you might call it, by cultivating a workable expertise in the history of natural history art and had a few invitations to lecture at natural history museums and universities. Nothing reliable, but there was some income to be gained. So when the offer to lecture in Amsterdam for $20,000, handsomely funded by the William Bartram Memorial Lecture Series, came from Dr. Teresa Backer, I hesitated about 30 seconds before saying yes. The contract was faxed, and I faxed it directly back and began the next day to do research. I had fallen into scholarship, in part because of my estrangement from the writing of novels, and like I said, I was very grateful for the employment. In addition, the lectures were going to be published in a small book. A Dutch university press book on bird art, I said to my wife. That's going to bring in big bucks. <laughs> Let's break out the champagne, she said. The lectures were to be presented at the University of Amsterdam on four consecutive Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m., reception to follow. The poster advertised public recognition and private response, bird art from Hiroshige to Audubon. Dr. Backer, the art historian and longtime faculty member who had invited me in the first place, had come up with this title. When I had completed the next to last drafts of the lectures, I sent them to Dr. Backer. In a letter, she expressed confidence that they would be well received. May I quietly suggest, she wrote, that you begin only your first lecture with, quote, John James Audubon is around 500 on a list of my 500 most admired historical artists specializing in birds. You see, as all four lectures presently begin with the exact same words, my concern is this might provide an indulgence of temperament and distract an audience away from the compelling content of your lectures. I dearly hope you won't mind my suggestion here. Back at the Ambassade Hotel, Philomena's and Benjamin's honeymoon was in great distress. Soon enough, almost the entire hotel staff agreed with a night concierge, Mr. Emile Bergamp, when he said, we must try to solve their honeymoon. And I would like, and I would like nothing more than to report that things with Philomena and Benjamin ended all sweetness and light, but I cannot. Thank you.